when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The photo is black and white and slightly soft focused. There are eight people dressed in black lounging together in front of a paint splattered roll of tarp. Their faces are young and rock star serious. They could be actors or musicians, but they're not. They're game developers or quote software artists unquote as the accompanying text would have it. The image is part of an advertising campaign for the fledgling publisher Electronic Arts. And accompanying the photo are two possible slogans depending on where ad, where the ad was placed. One says, we see farther. The other, much more memorably, is, can a computer make you cry? This was how EA advertised itself in 1983. That is from a piece by Keith Stewart at Eurogamer uh, called Seeing Farther, the advert that changed the games industry. I'm Danielle Riendo, and this is Waypoint Radio episode 190. Joining me today are Rob Zachney. Hello, hello. And Patrick Klepik. Hiya. So we're down in Natalie this week, uh, so it might be a slightly shorter episode, but we are here to talk about image, and specifically the image of game developers sort of in the industry and trying to look cool, and subsequently how creatives are sort of advertised and how creatives themselves have a sort of image that we are generally kind of attracted to. So you so, gather a bunch of cool people to talk yes. about what it means to be cool. All right. Only the coolest. Only the coolest people. my daughter tells me, so it's got to be true. <laughs> I mean, she's got great taste. You know, she knows what she's talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? So, she has a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge about you. the world, so. Hmm? <laughs> Last I heard, your daughter couldn't stand you. She's going through a phase where she was like, no, no Dada. No, we're back on the Dada train. We're okay. Back on... Oh, okay. Okay, you are cool again. I'm cool for the next, like, three to five days, and then. <laughs> Until Trolls 2. And then. <laughs> right. Trolls 2 will be the breaking point, and, and you know, I I understand. I get it. You know, if I were two, you know, you got a lot. She's two, right? Around that? She's, yes, she's correct. Okay. All right, cool, cool. Got to make sure I got it all right. Um, so this piece was really cool. It was about, like, this really specific image uh, and advertising, this piece of advertising that brought to mind a lot of things, including another piece from uh, 20 years later, which would be the Tom Bissell... Uh, just incredible, amazing, memorable piece about Cliff Clifford Blazinski or Cliffy B from 2008. I'm going to read a few quotes from that, uh, sort of during the course of this uh, of this uh, episode. I'm going to start with a <laughs> with with a, a beautiful paragraph, uh, and then we can kind of talk. I think a little bit about creatives and the creative lifestyle and the way creatives advertise themselves. Uh, or, or how Tom Bissell advertised Cliffy B, because, oh my God, some of the language in this piece uh, really is very instructive. All right, so I'll start with this one little quote here. 
Despite the rapid growth of the video game industry, and by the way, video hyphen game, whoof, style choice, New Yorker, real, real amazing. Anyway, sorry. Despite the rapid growth of the video game industry, last year, sales were higher than either box office receipts or DVD sales. Designers are largely invisible within the wider culture. But Blazinski, who is known to his many fans and occasional detractors as Cliffy B., uh, tends to stand out among his colleagues. Heather Chaplin and Aaron Ruby's Smart Bomb, a book about the industry, recounts the peacockish outfits and hairstyles he has showcased at industry expos over the years. In 2001, he affected the stylings of a 21st century Tom Wolfe with white snakeskin shoes and bleached hair. In 2002, he took to leather jackets in an early Clooney Caesar cut. By 2003, he was wearing long fur-lined coats, his hair skater punk red. In recent years, he has let his hair grow shaggy, which gave him the mellow aura of a fourth BG. So a lot of this is sort of uh, standard practice uh, celebrity profiling for, you know, late uh, 2000s, you know, for, for 2008 when this appeared. It's, you know, going into the clothing, it's going into the attitude, it's going into the sort of aura of a person and trying to get at the details of a person by, you know, creating this image for the reader. But what stands out to me, and Rob, I know you are very familiar with this piece, and you, you probably have some thoughts here, just how hard this is making it sound like Tom Bissell, the writer of this piece, is trying to make Cliffy B sound like the coolest guy you've ever met in your entire life, and he's a video hyphen game developer, which is really, really is something. Yeah, and like I don't think this piece ages very well i don't think it came across particularly well uh at the time if you were into games i've always had some sympathy for the piece because like i imagine there were significant editorial headwinds at the time there is a ton of i think the article is called the grammar of fun there's a ton it of is. like getting into the basics of what it is that blazinski does the, the games he makes uh and trying to make that relatable and sound impressive to a uh you know mid 2000s New Yorker audience which is its own which is its own thing and there's sort of a generational presumption i think baked into the piece nevertheless what ends up happening is because it is so often trying to convince you that this is uh, of of great cultural import <laughs> it ends up i think being a little bit silly especially like in retrospect especially if you knew uh like what gears of war was at the time uh, and so it's it, it, the other, the other tricky thing is it tries to get at a lot of uh, this idea of a bit the tortured artist, uh, a person with a, you know a great deal of of depths that underlie their work, but there is the ultimate problem of it's a game with the chainsaw bayonet and people getting like bisected and then fist bumps and like sick guitar riffs. Like that's that's the thing this this piece is up against, and so I've always had really mixed feelings about it because it was this so badly flawed attempt to try and create this idea of uh, a serious video games auteur that uh, mainstream culture uh, and the cultural gatekeepers should take seriously, um, but at the same time, like it's so o overwritten in retrospect. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. And it Patch, seems like a, a yeah. lot of this, you know, comes out of a desire for legitimacy, right? Like, you know, Tom Bissell's obviously a fan of video games. I think we've all 
bristled up and, and brushed up against the, the notion that, you know, everyone on this you know podcast like has decided to make their career. Like, and I think all of us have had moments where trying to justify or explain that to other people has been a challenge. And I think the same reason that the games as art discussion comes up over and over again, despite even in 2018, I think profiles like this are reflective of a medium trying to justify its existence to outsiders through parameters that we judge other mediums, right? So it's like a famous book author, you know, 2008, The Height of Harry Potter, right? So like J.K. Rowling becomes a celebrity alongside Harry Potter. Actors and actually, and she's not, you know, she's not visible, right? Like she wrote a book, like the movies were coming out then and th- that certainly helped. But like they're with video games, that same sort of uh, rise to prominence, public consciousness was not happening with video games. In 2008, that's the, you know, the beginning of Gears of War. Like that's like, like this is the, the height of Cliffy B's own powers. And so, but he wasn't naturally rising in the same way. And that, there aren't the same venues for them to rise, right? There's not late, like, there's no late night talk shows. There was, but they weren't covering video games. Like it would, it, you know, it's different these days, right? Like you know, the way the Jimmy Fallon's of the world are having, you know, video game designers on in the same way that they have um, artists and, and and authors and stuff like that. But I think part of the overriding from this, and and part of the the problem why it it, it feels it echoes wrong in retrospect is because it becomes even more transparent how much it is desperately looking to convey that sense of legitimacy for a medium that feet like. Despite how much it was even making at the time, how much more it makes now, how culturally relevant games have continued to become in the years since, wants the validation of the outside world. And part of that validation is through having creative people that become part of pop culture. Well, and I think this is the other thing that makes makes it desirable to create heroes or uh, give people like the reputation of great art, give, like burnish people with the aura of like a a great artist because i think a lot of times games don't necessarily speak for themselves right like there's that problem i can't remember years later i cannot remember who the author was uh it was all another new yorker series it was somebody going into video games completely naive of them was it george packer it might have been uh but it was somebody basically trying to come into games it was almost like a very serious and well-meaning clueless gamer segment uh like trying to get at what these things are and a lot of them, if you, like, if you really do dig into them, there's a lot of silliness you have to immediately look past. I'm flashing back to uh, an early Idle Thumbs. You know, it's the same guy when uh, I think it was like uh, Jake Rodkin's dad or something is playing Bioshock and sees a splice, like a splicer model repeat, and is immediately like, "Well, that's the that's the same person that you just killed. What, <laughs> what's going on?" The truth is. That's because it's a stock character. It's a it's a model. You're gonna see that guy a million times. A lot of games break down a little bit when you place them under that kind of microscope. The microscope of, uh, you know, if you've been like trained to look at look at games almost as if they're film or or something like that. And so the game, the text itself, the game itself is gonna have a hard time standing up. But you can maybe sell people a little more easily on the notion that someone's an artist even if you can't necessarily sell them on the notion that their art had merit yeah and that ties in so perfectly with the sort of cult of celebrity around ken levine at the time of course which uh there's a fantastic podcast retronauts podcast recently uh about bioshock and it goes pretty heavily into uh the idea of ken levine as like the poster chat and he was i think he was like 40 at the time too but he was still very much seen as like this hip young man who has created sadness in a video game 
and depth and uh, political, you know, rhetoric is being spoken about in a video game. And it, it was a whole thing for a few years before, obviously, uh, complications around Bioshock Infinite happened and people started to uh, see through some, maybe perhaps some of the veneer there. Uh, but there have been multiple sort of failed attempts at creating a cult of celebrity around uh, video game developers, studio heads, especially creative directors or, you know, folks who are in like a very high up creative role. And I kind of wonder why they've been primarily failures. And I, there are some successes, certainly. I, I think on the smaller level, somebody like Steve Gaynor is pretty much heralded in, in some spaces, you know, as an indie game designer who has made cool games that are interesting and they they kind of stand the test of time to some degree. I also have to say, with the disclosure that I know him personally, and of course, maybe I have a different view of him than other people do. So take that one with a grain of salt. Yeah, Steve Gaynor fucking sucks. That's my view. <gasps> you heard it here first. Shots fired against Steve Gaynor. Tough to argue with that. Uh. <laughs> real scoops my ass. <gasps> That's what it is. You have a scoops, scoops issue with him. I understand. I don't want to get into it here. I don't want to distract from what we're talking about. That's a separate part. That'll be one of... Eight new podcasts that we're doing. That's right. My, my, my takedown investigation of Steve Gaynor. <laughs> we've got Scoop Scoops. We've got the Poltergeist Post. Mm-hmm. Post, po, post. Poltergeist, Poltergeist Post. Yes, our eight pod. part discussion of Poltergeist. 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 Exactly. Perfect. Poltergeist, that's good. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do kind of want to talk a little bit about how, you know, so in this EA, in the piece about the EA ad, the 1983 ad. I'll, I'll read a tiny little bit also from the end here and then talk a little bit about how this seems to keep failing, <laughs> this kind of general idea, and I, and I kind of wonder why that is. But from the piece again, uh, the piece on the EA ad, the EA adverts changed the industry because they showed the wider potential of games, they flirted with new audiences, they promised new experiences, they also uh, signaled the growing ambition of the industry. Later in 1983, the publisher released the, the basketball sim Dr. J and Larry Bird Go One-to-One, kickstarting the EA Sports concept that would define the company and make it millions, but would all somehow emanate from those double-page spreads. I don't know if this is... I mean, yes, okay. They're, they're making a case here uh, for the EA ad kind of changing the industry, but I don't think it necessarily changed people's perceptions of video game developers as as nerds. Like, it's... it that kept going that is still absolutely a a stereotype that exists today you know the kind of failure of the the ken levine uh aura of the of the auteur also didn't really uh hold up super well so and obviously the cliffy b thing like yes this piece we were talking about from the new yorker was absolutely an attempt to show how cool he was and show how cool game designers are but it feels to me that this because this keeps happening, we were looking at a piece from 1983 and then a piece from 2008, and now looking today, the, these stereotypes about game designers as kind of dorks with computers seems to still be around. I don't know, unless you both feel differently. Do you feel that like the stereotype is actually turned around based on these kinds of ads or this kind of work? No, I mean, I'm not so much sure it's it's about the the stereotype. Like, I think there's there's a lot going on there. Like. 
Yeah, like video games become a much larger cultural force after that ad, but I'm not sure it has anything to do with that ad. Yeah. Uh, electronic arts going like that—that that sort of high-minded, like let's 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 be electronic arts, right? Like let's celebrate the artisans who make these games. That begins to go away. Like the the growing mainstream acceptance and popularity of video games is like tra- tracks pretty closely with like their increasing commoditization. Uh, as sort of corporate products and IPs. IPs become the celebrities, not not the game designers. And I don't think that's necessarily because people feel like, well, you know, video games are video games are still ultimately made by nerds. So much as that uh Levine's unusual in that Bioshock still like derives legitimacy from his involvement right like bioshock 2 for whatever reason kind of got sneered at at first because like it was not a ken levine game uh and like he was one of the few designers to be associated with a game that way uh obviously the perfect example is like kojima uh being someone who like gets gets author credit for games and if he's not involved then they are seen as somehow diminished but i think those are really kind of the exceptions that prove the rule which is this you know, ultimately it didn't serve the industry or companies particularly well to continue putting uh, forth this idea that there's rock star game developers out there who's making all this. Don't pay attention to who's making your game. Fall in love with the Assassin's Creed hood. Look at that fucking hood. Where's that hood going to go next? You got to get you got to get in on the next adventure of the hood. You love it. The well, because then, hood. because you then you can't have that associated the Ken Levine Bioshock Association, right? Like if you don't like Ubisoft, great example, right? If you have no who the fuck makes the next one, right? Like nobody that you go look at the credits, I guess. But a then diverse you see, like, global a, team, right? Right, and and so like you know, team effort. Th- that that is as much a calculation based on the way that they build the types of games that they build, but it is part of a larger calculation in which you are trying to disassociate or not allow people to disassociate um, games from the people who uh, create them. I mean, like uh, I wrote a piece uh, a couple of weeks back about the lack of crediting in. Um, remakes and uh, uh, like remasters Um, and it reminded me of the fact that um, back in the 80s and probably the 90s as well especially during the the, the NES era uh, that the Japanese game developers wouldn't put like full names of designers in the credits. Now they were from what I understand they were doing that for like poaching reasons they didn't want you to find out like oh this person designed you know the levels in this amazing platformer we don't want to steal them, but it is part of like a larger culture that has been part of video games in which like there is there is reason, there is motivation that is beyond um, to, to incentivize not allowing people to understand that there are humans, there are people underneath. I mean, hell, we're seeing this play out with the Telltale stuff, right? Like yeah. like, a, like a Telltale trying to rally the, the base uh, around, aren't you excited that we might find a partner to finish the season? And while at the same time, we're not going to pay these people severance. Like this plays out in all sorts of different ways. Um, that are both malicious and a byproduct, um, but it, it's it is it is certainly something that is prevalent, you know, decades ago and remains to this day. Yeah, absolutely. That is one of the things I I certainly thought about when I was uh, kind of looking at this topic is that that sort of oh, it's, there's a factory like uh, you know that you know players of games and even people who are relatively in the know about games might know a couple of names you know they might know a couple they might i'm sure they know a kojima they probably know a ken levine maybe but people who are as into say movies or books or or whatever 
can name directors, they can name authors, they can name other people in creative capacities who aren't necessarily, uh, you know, the figurehead, the star of the movie. They can probably also name Spielberg and Lucas and, you know, more names than necessarily uh, game directors or game designers or creative directors. And that is sort of a problem with it coming out of tech, right? We've we've talked about this a few times, I think, uh, you know, about like, oh, you know, the the framing being, oh, there's a company that makes this. It's not just like a bunch of human beings who are artisans, the way this EA ad is, is trying to pitch, but instead like, oh no, there's a, you know, technical company of hundreds of people and they all kind of have their hands on it and it is a, you know, collective effort and not, oh, somebody actually made some creative decisions here. And that's not inherently a bad thing where it acknowledges that a team and a studio is making the work, but it is a bad thing when people don't think that human beings compose that team, right? Or they're like, oh, good, you know, whatever. As long as I get my my game, it's fine. It came through the, the magical factory where games are made. Um, that becomes a, a real issue, as we're seeing with Telltale. Uh, there was one more thing I wanted to just super briefly mention about this particular ad and Rob, I know this will be a little bit near and dear to your heart, and it's just how much it reminded me uh, of some of the framing and some of the brilliance of Halt and Catch Fire, a show everyone should watch. I'm just going to say I it right here. I, I need to get around. I know oh. that isn't the pitch that the first season is sort of slow and rough, but that it like accelerates exponentially after that? Yes. And I actually even think the first season is, uh, while a bit slow, I don't think it's... Uh, torturous and yeah, it's not way. bad i'm just yeah, the yeah. jump in quality between seasons is like you know enormous it's it's pretty incredible i think it's a really wonderful show it's very much it, the pitch on it is oh it's mad men for technology for silicon right. valley and even uh silicon prairie which was sort of like in texas actually in the early 80s a lot of mm. this uh the pc boom was happening and people were starting to make computers and make sense of it and make sense of the tech industry Really incredible show. I know it's not Waypoints, but I'm just throwing it out there that y'all should watch this damn show because it's amazing. Uh, this particular ad really, really framed, uh, came close to framing a discussion that uh, Cameron and Donna have in uh, an episode early on in season one. They're talking about computers. Just to frame it, Cameron is this incredible, amazing programmer. She's like 19 or 20. Uh, she's been hired on to work on a computer. And Donna is this like, old school engineer. She's been making computers and working with computers. Uh, and this is in the early eighties, you know, for something like 10, 15 years at this point. And she's like the old school engineer who thinks of these as machines and they're great, but they're just machines. And so they have this, uh, argument. So Cameron's like, if, if theory is, I want to do something a little bit more than, than that two times than everybody else is doing, computers should have photorealistic screens. They should have a million pixels and be self-learning and run expert systems. They should beat me at chess. And then, uh, of course, Donna bringing it back down says, and maybe Hal can have human emotions too and steer the ship while they're sleeping. Uh, and then uh, Cam says, so we're just building another boring beige box. And Donna says, you're not building anything, okay? I am. It's just this wonderful moment of, uh, sort of like what computers can be and what they can do and the kind of blue sky design versus the, well, somebody's got to sit here and actually make it and do the work kind of moment, which, again, I know it's not directly related to game developers, but it, it made me think of that. It but just it, uh, it kind of is though, right? Like I mean, yeah, all right. Because that show is about this moment um, where tech itself sort of had stars and personalities. Yes, true. Like, there were Very figures true. that were put at the center of things. Now, it's tough for me, like at at the remove of like popular memory, to know like 
how much is that true, right? Like, it's one thing to watch, um, you know, the, the, the Sorkin Jobs movie uh, and, like, see that. Like, it's a really watchable, like, really cool, like, great man narrative. Uh, but how much does that reflect the actual like way Steve Jobs was regarded and treated at the time? Were he and uh, you know Wozniak like really viewed as sort of two sides of this coin of the rise of computers and advancement, and different approaches to doing it? Uh, was it like was it really seen in that that way? Were they really sort of standing in for these like competing ideas, or is that kind of idea we project in the rear view, right, based mm-hmm. on well, they were, they, you know, they were centered in some marketing materials. Uh, and now, because of the way history unfolded and because Jobs sort of uh, became an icon in his later years, we now sort of read all of that back in that era. I don't know. It's tough for me to judge at, at this remove, but it does seem like in the 80s, through the 80s, there's a lot of this, like, tech idealism. And it's a lot of, because nobody knows what this tech is going to mean. So, like, there's sort of boundaries between, like, engineering and philosophy and, like, science fiction. And that's all really exciting. Eventually, those ideas begin to settle into product cycles. And it's harder and harder to have heroes based around a product cycle. Yeah. Absolutely. And the show, how far did you get, Rob? Just just as Got to the end of season one. Okay, Um, okay. So... Uh, watched uh, Lee Pace's character um, make more bold mistakes. Oh, he sure does. Um, The show goes places with both the jobs kind of metaphor and also really, really, really hardcore into tech idealism uh, and tech idealism in the 90s. It takes several shifts. I'm not going to spoil anything, uh, but just big picture, uh, it, it goes real hard. Uh, on tech idealism uh, and also gender and sexuality and a little bit on race and quite a bit on the internet and what the internet could be in both wonderful ways and absolutely horrible ways. Uh, Great show. Honestly, everyone go watch it. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. So, okay, uh, we had a question that was super relevant to today's topic, and I figured we should also talk about this. So I'm going to go with an anonymous question. Uh, (gasps) I know. Is it a comment? Is it a question? Is it the comment bucket? I don't know. It's anonymous. So here we go. Subject was, why doesn't Waypoint work more names of game creators into its coverage? Here we go. Now, this isn't a question about our tour theory, which I know Austin is pretty vocally against, 
but I find the site's seeming reluctance to bring up creators and its coverage at odds with the site's pro-worker editorial stances. For example, wouldn't it be more in line with the site's politics to specifically uh, name some team leads in a review uh, like the Tomb Raider one instead of just calling it an Eidos team? Sure, environment artist number 15 uh, still isn't going to be mentioned, but at least that moves the idea of credit to people and away from a brand that's owned by a corporation. Shouldn't a games culture that always credits that way, uh, sorry, credit, <clears throat> excuse me, that is always credited that way, uh, better empower the people that work at these studios, even if they wouldn't cite each and every last contributor? Anonymous, please. And then Anonymous also gives us this. I also, I do totally acknowledge that you do cite leads in some cases where it's a big name creator or a small one to two person team. So we're, we've got some of it. Yeah, like we, we could probably do a better job in which instances where it is obvious that you can assign credit. I think the some of the hesitance there comes from our own ignorance on how you would assign that credit, right? Like when there is very obviously you can't like, you know, the, the film example, it's like you can assign a there are people that work under a cinematographer, but like. The cinematographer is a lead that you can assign a certain amount of vision and contribution to, and there are people that support that. Um, but like, th there's a mental model and like a clear significance, and it's like, yes, like I suppose like if I'm walking talking about a Walking Dead episode and I'm like praising the characterization, I suppose I can, you know, there are an instance where you could list those three writers and praise. Like there is an instance where you can pretty you might be able to describe. Oh, I can't describe this character arc, but generally speaking, I enjoyed the writing. Like, there are ways to get that stuff in. But I would say the general hesitance is both not knowing who to credit, um, especially in AAA games where it's like, yeah, combat design could have, like, 35 people. Um, and so at that point, do you assign it to the lead, the creative director? Like, that doesn't seem right. Um, and because we know, we all know specific, it may be because we know enough about how video games are made that actually leads to a resistance to assigning certain types of credit because there's no way to quite figure out where to nail that down. And also, it's that runs into a, a second uh, problem that I'm sure we've talked about in the past where you don't... People have a, a, a you know a, a tendency to say, so, you know, Ken Levine created Bioshock. Like, well, no, he was the director of Bioshock. He didn't... The word create is, has a certain connotation. Um, so I think all those kind of blend together in a way that probably make us more hesitant than we should be, and it's probably something we could be more explicit about in situations where you can draw like a direct line. Yeah, I agree with all that. And also uh, there are just times in the ways in which these are uh, put forth to us and to the world. Publishers don't really celebrate creatives in the same way as well. Like sometimes you will get someone like uh, there was, uh, God, I've called him sword dad before. And I believe his last name is Vanden Bosque. I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, but he was put forth on the, you know, on the Ubisoft stage for, um, for honor, you know, as like, oh, oh right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has designed sword combat in these other games. And here, here he is. And he has like, you know, obviously a wonderful persona and, and he is very enthusiastic about he's like swords. He's a big bearded dude, right? He is. It's, I think it's Vanden Bosque. I want to make sure I get it right. Uh, <laughs> sorry. I just want to make sure I get this right, because this is the whole point of answering this question in this way, right? <laughs> and yet this is an unintentionally illuminating moment. Isn't it? <laughs> Isn't it, like, oh, yeah. so much? Sword Dad. I love Sword that Dad. guy. God damn it. For honor. 
come on. So, Rob, did you have something? Uh, no, I was I I was just thinking about. It can be awkward with stuff like this. Like, for instance, in the last few months, when especially when we were doing um, Jason Vandenberg, not Vanden Bosk. I'm sorry. That was close. Pardon me. Pardon me. Uh, there was a there was a run a few months ago where like in my open threads and stuff, I just kept like, you know, part of open thread was like, hey, what 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 day what game am I going to complain about today? What thoughts do I have? Or like, here's a, here's a point I'm going to make. This game did this well. This other game did this really poorly. And like like clockwork, this one developer would email me and be like, oh man, like you really hated that one game I worked on, or like you hated that part of the game I worked on. And I'd be like, oh shit, like, well, you know, games are complicated. Sorry, I didn't, I, I didn't know. And then a few months later, I'd do it again. And it was like a different game, different project. I'd get an email like, man, like you really hate, like, like every, every article you write, it's like you're just like setting my like resume on fire. And it was sort of this, uh, and, and the person was, was a great sport about it. Uh, and they, they, they didn't take offense at all. And they, they sort of let me know where I was a little out to lunch and a little, and a little bit on the money uh, with these articles. So that was cool. But I think the funniest part about it for me is like, there was no way for me to ever know who did what on that game. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there was, and this is sort of what, what Patrick, Patrick was alluding to as well. Even if I had like been sitting writing these articles down with a detailed breakdown of like who worked on the game, right? If I'd had Moby Games open and like who was the lead on this, who did who did what, the odds of me misattributing something, you know, either directly or just by implication, right, are pretty great. And that's something you you definitely have to be careful about. Uh, that's not to say like when there when good work has been done, probably is worth it to try try and at least like carpet bomb uh some names out there for people who probably were involved in it uh but i'm also thinking back to that conversation i had with dia about like tomb raider and that's not a conversation where i think it's wise to name drop like anybody uh because we like we're going to be having some really pointed critiques of what happened here and it's very hard for us to know who's responsible for the decisions we're questioning. And it would be awful to realize that like, Oh, we just like literally dragged someone's name uh, and like, you know, put the, put the onus on them for, for some work we didn't enjoy. And then it turns out, well, their title said this, but they actually had no part of that one part of the game we didn't enjoy. Or maybe they fought against certain decisions right. with all their lifeblood. And then, couldn't for whatever reason get certain things through or couldn't you know and had to kind of put their stamp on it or or so on and so forth which we know definitely happens in this industry and i'm sure in other creative industries as well so yeah and that's different than uh you know looking at a film and being like oh the, this specific actor like sucked like i didn't like their performance i mean that may be related to the script they may be related to other things but you have like something very actionable in front of you that you can draw a line to and that just really doesn't often doesn't exist in video games unless they're extremely small teams where it's like there's a writer, a level design, you know, th those sorts yeah. of things. Then you can um, more specific, specifically uh, sort of draw. But I, I agree with Rob's thing, that especially when you're going negative, being critical. I, I don't know who that helps, and especially in an age where 
the moment you do that, those people are going to be targeted for X, Y, and Z. Like, yeah. you know, you're you're criticizing with the people, with the products, not necessarily the specific person and their intentions. I mean, you can do that, but that is, you know, that comes with its own stumbling blocks. Yeah. Criticize a team. That's a little bit of, yeah. Makes sense. Or at least you got to be very specific, very confident. Like you have to have very a, a reason, like a, a a reason to be going down that path. I'm not suggesting there aren't, you know, I think there's all sorts of reasons. Like in Bioshock Infinite, to be deeply critical of Ken Levine and his ideology, given what that game represents, um, you can draw a line there, um, even if he didn't write every line, if he didn't, you know, do every plot beat. Um, yeah. But if you're going to go down that path, you got to be, you know, prepared to be uh, accurate about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, we have another letter, and I just happen to agree with it a lot. Uh, so I'm going to read this one. <laughs> Hi, Waypoint, and hopefully Danielle. I know the new Waypoints podcast isn't generally a place where listeners suggest something for the team to check out, but I was hoping with the new season of Superstore starting on October 4th, you could convince your co-hosts to check out some earlier episodes. I started watching Superstore based on your recommendation uh, in a few episodes of Idle Weekend, and it became one of my favorite shows. I had an instant connection with Superstore's characters working a minimum wage job for a mega company that doesn't care about them. I've worked in failing offices, and I just started working in a local government surrounded by bureaucracy. But I've never had a connection with the characters in The Office or Parks and Rec like I've had with Superstore. Working in, a franchise, uh, working in franchise pizza places, blockbusters, and big box liquor stores made a bigger impact on me compared to any office job I had. I know what it's like to deal with rude customers. I've worked shifts where I was too sick to be there, but needed the money and came in anyway. I still remember the assistant managers who treated me like crap despite not having any real authority in the store. It also does a great job weaving these problems with larger issues that workers in the service industry face today, like unionization, fair wages, healthcare, immigration, sexual harassment, and discrimination. There are times where it drops the ball and ends an episode on a joke rather than a dig into the structural and societal reasons for these problems, but the fact that it addresses them at all shows it understands how important these problems are. I know these topics are important to everyone at Waypoint as well, which is why I think now is a great time to introduce others to the show. It's streaming on Hulu, and if I had to pick a few representative episodes, uh, the pilot is great to introduce the characters in the finale of season one, quote, labor, unquote, as well as the premiere of season two, quote, strike, unquote, is an amazing mini arc early on in the show. Thanks, Andy from St. Paul, Minnesota. Twice today I've gotten to say, watch this thing, it's great. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard good things about that show. And yeah. you don't see a lot of shows that are about jobs like that. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's on my list. Unfortunately, we live in an age when that list doesn't get shorter. <laughs> I know. It is it is it is a problem for sure. But, uh, yeah, you know I love that show. Rob already knows how I feel about Superstore. So uh, preaching to the choir as usual. But, yeah. Like I'm trying to think of what, like are, the, what are some touch. other great shows about work? Like, not work. Like, like I'm thinking, like, Taxi, uh, like I don't know, there was this great wave of like '70s sitcoms, right? Uh, yeah. Like that were fundamentally like like workplace comedies that Murphy were... Brown. Murphy Brown. Yeah, yeah, I, but I feel like that one because it's so like because journalism is always like sort of a commentary. I don't know, it, it is a workplace comedy, yeah. but like right. I don't know if it has as much of a sense of like what the day to day like yeah, labor like, is it, it, of like right. Like whereas uh, it sounds like this the show that. Uh, uh, you guys were talking about before that's like it's driving a tumor from the specific context of the workplace as opposed to Murphy Brown it, it, it's more just like 
set dressing. I mean, I, it's been a long time since I watched that show, but I think that like leans more on the side of just happens to take place in a newsroom as opposed to it needs to take place in a newsroom yeah. for it to uh, drive what it's saying. Yeah. That's a really good question, Rob. I'm I'm really Yeah. I mean, the IT crowd is funny. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, the most serious show about issues. It's a good show. Yeah, it's it's t- <laughs> it's, it's not the same way, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think like a show I, I refer to a lot is Party Down, right? That's hmm, another that okay. is another show about working. Uh, and I think Parks the, and Rec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It certainly is. Yeah, I mean, Parks and Rec is like very whimsical in a lot of ways, uh, and very very fun to watch. Although, yeah, that I have a a weird arc with Parks and Rec in that uh, I think it goes from being really funny to being really enjoyable, but not necessarily as funny. Uh, I'm sure it's not an arc only I have, but yeah, it's it's an interesting. Well, eventually, like the pro, I think my issue with Parks and Rec, and I could like I never got to the end of it, but it is. I think it was one of the first shows to really suffer from this problem, which is that if your comedy like centers on everyone fundamentally like really loving each other and getting along and always doing the right thing, it means like it's tough to sustain conflict or like portray like realistic like bone deep contradictions between characters. And I think Parks and Rec like it becomes sweet. There's a lot of like you know sweet moments and like funny but increasingly the humor depends on like well john ralphio better show up and do something fucking wacky because a scene of leslie and ron uh sort of having different worldviews on like what a healthy diet is that's no longer funny right there's no longer right. any tension there so i think that's that's another uh i think and i suspect that maybe that's even a barrier to like great workplace comedies is like people in workplaces like there is real friction in a job yeah. And good comedy can result from that. Uh, but you have to be willing to dig into the way that like people who are fundamentally cool and like cool with each other can still end up like at odds at work, right? Or like something can happen at work and just people ha- like don't ha- handle stuff well and like it gets disappointing. That's part of comedy. Um, but I feel like Parks and Rec was always a show where at the end of that 30 minutes, Everything is fine. That toothpaste back in that fucking tube. We're all good. <laughs> and I'm curious if Superstar breaks from that, right? And like, oh, if yeah. there's arcs where, you know, if you yeah, mishandled I, something with management, does that linger between you and your coworkers? Does that hang in the air? It, it tends to. And like uh, Andy is saying here, there are definitely times where things are wrapped up a little too nicely or neatly, but there are also times where they're super not and things are hanging there and or just a massive structural problem is just, it's still there. Nobody actually fixed it because this is just basically a, a Target or a Walmart, you know, stand in. It's called Cloud Nine in the show, but it's so obvious what it's kind of going for. It, it is the Walmart and there is a Target sort of stand in rival store as well. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> and and so every one of these issues that Andy brings up and, and many, many more, uh, it really is the, uh, <clears throat> the sort of like approach to comedy where it's like, it, it is sweetened a bitter pill, you know. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna be really funny, and you're gonna genuinely laugh at a lot of the slapstick and a lot of the sort of situational comedy. And the performers on this show are so 
just such gifted physical performers. There's just a, a great deal of slapstick in this show, which I enjoy a lot. I'm just the kind of person who really loves a good gag or a good sight gag, right? Um, but it's, it's also going to be like, healthcare is absolutely, utterly fucking broken in this country. And no matter what we do to try to fix it, like, on our level, we are being oppressed uh, as minimum wage workers. And there's nothing we can fucking do. We will try some wild plot, but we're screwed. Like, it's very, it is, it tends to be fairly honest about a lot of these things, which I really appreciate about that show. So, great show. It's no newsroom. (laughs) (laughs) It's no poltergeist. All right. (laughs) If you have questions, comments, or uh, TV recommendations that I agree with, uh, you can send questions to gamingatvice.com with a subject question. A little bit of a short one today because we are missing Natalie, uh, but she'll be back shortly. She'll be back on... uh, on the next Friday episode and or something else, of course, because we have other things going on now. Uh, and as always, shout outs to Bowen for letting us use his track, Miss You, off the EP Pale Machine. We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. We're on twitch.tv slash Waypoint. And you can read everything that we write on the editorial site at waypoint.vice.com. Patrick, where can people find you on this great big internet of ours? You can find me at Patrick Kulpik. Amazing. Rob, how about you? At Rob Zachney. You can find me uh, tweeting about Superstore at at Danielle R.I. And as always, I will leave you to enjoy your weekend with this thought. Be good and be good at it. WKRP in Cincinnati. Another good <laughs> workplace show. There you go. Yeah, Definitely a jingle. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.